in the vineyard. Labors in the vineyard, this parable that answers Peter's question that we considered last week, what shall we have since we've blessed everything? And this is a parable that Jesus Christ gives to us after telling us the great and blessed rewards of the believer. He says this, verse 30, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again in the sixth hour, in the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, Call the laborers and pay them again. Notice, according to pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came... They thought that they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, like Jonah, saying, these last worked only one hour, and yet you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? Again, notice verse 16 for the third time. So the last will be first and the first last. Please pray with me. Lord, we come before you today. And um, God, we, we need your word. We need for you as our prophet, priest, and king to tell us our sin and to show us grace and mercy, to tell us who God is and what duty You require of us. And God, we come before You needy, knowing that Your Word is sufficient to do all of those things. Please, God, help me today um, as, I, as I confess, even, even now, Lord, uh, dealing with the children and the service during the singing. My mind's a little bit jostled. I pray that You would help me to, to quiet my mind and to do good to Your people. I pray that You'd fill me with Your Spirit and that Your Spirit would cause all of us to see the great grace that is offered and the rewards given to us freely through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Help us to see it today. In Your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. One of the things that we realize when we consider the Word of God, and especially the written revelation given to us in the Bible, is that we are so naturally corrupted in our hearts and tending, as we talked about in Sunday school, toward, toward all evil, that we need a prophet. A prophet to tell us who God is because we're so inclined to making other gods for ourselves. We need a prophet to tell us what God requires of us. And so I simply praise God 
that the deepest recesses of the human heart and our most innate tendencies toward evil, towards legalism, towards judging other people, and even despising God's grace when others we deem less deserving than ourselves receive something good from God. That He exposes that deep sinful root in the human heart. And that's what He does for us today. Jesus gives a parable to His disciples, to believers, that warns all of us of our tendency to view Gospel rewards with a legal spirit. Now we use that terminology with a legal spirit. That is on the, on the basis of I do something and then I get because of my doing. Okay, That's what I mean by legality. Okay? Not freely offered, freely received and partaken of, but with a legal spirit. And so the purpose here, I want to give threefold. It's first to remind us of our desperate need of grace. Second, to demonstrate the grace of God to sinners, or we could say to remind us that God loves to demonstrate His free grace to sinners. And then lastly, to expose legal spirits that are in our own hearts. Okay, That is what this parable is designed to do. And so first, in chapter 19, verse 30, through chapter 20, verse 7, we have a reminder that we are called to remember our desperate condition before God. Our desperate condition before God. And we are always prone to forgetting this desperate condition. And because of that, when we forget who we are and what we rightly deserve as our wages, which is death, we tend to slip into a legal frame of mind towards God and towards others. That we are always prone to this danger of legally thinking about rewards. Now, in the context, we see this is very important. In chapter 19, you might recall a rich young ruler came up to Jesus Christ and asked Him, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And we saw that Jesus put the full weight of the law upon His shoulders and said, if you want to do to inherit eternal life, this is what that looks like. To prove to that man that he had not the ability, the skill, nor the godliness to do what God required him to do. Wanting him to flee to the grace of Jesus Christ. But Peter, in thinking of this, him and the fellow apostles, they thought, well, we have left everything and followed you. We were fishermen and tax collectors. We had businesses and families. And we've, we've left those things to come after you. What shall we have? And you might recall that Christ gives great encouragement to those men. Anybody that leaves a house or a father or a wife, when they come to the church in the present age, they receive a hundredfold, and in the age to come, eternal life. But here, Christ switches from the encouragement that rewards offer to the danger that rewards have, not in the rewards themselves, but in when they, are, when they come into collision with a sinful human heart. Okay? So, we ought to see that we are always in danger of viewing these rewards incorrectly, that they are wages earned and not grace given. Okay? But first, before we, we get to the remembrance, we have to understand and 
tried to ascertain what is meant by Christ when he says, the first will be last and the last will be first. You might notice that in verse 30 of chapter 19, verse 8 of chapter 20, and verse 16, this is repeated three times. And it is very surely the center of our parable. Now the problem is, when we consider the first shall be last and the last shall be first, especially in this parable, we can think of it as purely chronological. Does that make sense? That literally the first ones that come will literally be the last ones, and the last ones will literally be first. And that plays out in our parable in a very natural way. But when we compare Scripture with Scripture, right? As we know, church, the best interpreter of the Bible is the Bible itself, We look to some other passages. And I give you three texts to consider that this isn't purely chronological, but rather has to do more with inherent worth. That from earthly perspective, we put worth on something that God doesn't put worth on. So, for example, notice with me in Matthew chapter 20, if you'll just scan down with me to verse 25. Now, the sons of Zebedee, their mother comes up, and asks, I want my two sons to sit on your right and left hand in the kingdom of heaven. And the eleven are indignant at this request. The thought that these two men would be exalted above them makes them angry, much like the workers in our parable. But notice what's said in verse 25 through 28. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not so be among you. Notice this. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The first here is not purely chronological, I want us to notice. But rather, those who are esteemed in the eyes of the world, these great ones, if you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you must become last, unworthy in the eyes of the world. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9. Another example of when this language of first to last is used, and it is not purely chronological, but rather points to worth from a human perspective. Mark chapter 9. Verses 33 through 35. And this is familiar to us. Matthew chapter 18 was its parallel. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve. And he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. And the servant... Of all. Okay? The last example that we have is in Luke chapter 10. Oh, I'm sorry, chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, verses 28 through 30, we have here. Christ telling men that few will be saved and that we must enter in the narrow door. But the Jewish people who had been so long associated with God's covenant people, he says this, in that place 
There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 28. When you see Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves are cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first. And first will be last. That is these Jewish people who had the privilege of worth and honor of receiving God's oracles for so long. This privilege makes them first, but it will be turned into last if they do not have faith in Christ. And all of these texts are warnings to us not to think of rewards, again, with respect to wages earned, but rather as grace given to us. And what we should realize that should make us pay extra attention to this parable is that all of us in this room have an innate desire and tendency to look at our rewards with the, ask, with the, the thought that these are wages given to us. Okay? All of us have this innate desire in us, and so we have to be on guard against it. And the reason for that is, first of all, because man was created in a particular situation and covenant. Man was created in a covenant of works to God. God created man upright, but we sought out many schemes. He gave us a righteous law that we were to obey, and we failed to obey it. But if we completed obedience to that righteousness under this period of time, we would have attained eternal life with our God. And because we were created in that way, it is imprinted on all of our hearts, we must do something to earn God's favor. But we can't any longer. But we can't any longer. And now that we are fallen, we still have that tendency implanted in our souls to seek after God and to earn the rewards that He has given to us. And all religions have this in common. Christianity is the only religion in the world that views eternal life not on the basis of wages earned, but grace freely given through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the reason all religions have that, again, is because we're created with this, implanted in us. But secondly, we have the innate tendency to seek after God's rewards by working and doing something to earn them not only because we're born under a covenant, but because of the relationship that we have with one another. What do I mean by that? We have remaining corruption in us where I'm inclined not to love my neighbor as myself, but to love myself and hate my neighbor. And therefore, my, my whole life, even my religious life, has a tendency to become competitive and prideful. Now, you, many of you might have read C.S. Lewis. And in Mere Christianity, which is a good book in many respects, not totally recommended. But Lewis points out that pride is a sin that is competitive by nature. Right? That it doesn't really matter to the individual human heart whether we're rich or good looking, but rather that I'm richer and better looking than my fellow man. Right? If everybody had the same amount of wealth, that would not satisfy the human heart. We want to be better than everybody else. We want to be better than everybody else. And doesn't that strike a chord with this parable? Peter and these first laborers, they have a tendency in their heart that they are happy to receive God's reward except for when they see other people who they think are less deserving getting the same thing, right? Competition, pride, 
wells up in the human heart. And brothers and sisters, that is because we are born under a covenant of works toward God and we have a remaining corruption that shows itself to man. We not only want to get God in our pockets, but we want to be better than everybody else. Right? So, this is an innate tendency. And therefore, we ought to pay close attention to this Parable. This parable is designed to transform our natural innate thinking by the grace of God. And our thinking should be transformed first by a reminder that the rewards given are a gift to desperate people. To desperate people. Now, we see this when we come upon how Jesus Christ himself paints the picture of this parable. He could have chosen any number of images to put into our mind on how we should conceive rewards given. And he chose a very common image in first century Palestine, that of a day laborer. Verses 1 and 2 of chapter 20 have something exceedingly common that everybody in this time period would have experienced every day of their lives. The The kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers in his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into the vineyard. Now, what should be impressed upon our mind is that all of these people, the first and the last chosen, are in some sense in a place of desperation. Okay? Now, Peter and Matthew, these men called to follow Christ, they had regular jobs and vocations that they went to every day. But these people, they went to the marketplace early in the morning and there was a desperation that they would be chosen. That they would be picked by somebody that needed labor that they would be able to feed their families. Now, many of you, I know in our church, have gone through the stressful situation of hunting for a job, right? It can be an extremely stressful situation. You know you have a limited amount of money And if I don't get a job at a particular point, then that money's going to run out. And I would propose to you, think about these people. Every day of their lives, in some sense, they were job hunting. Hoping that somebody would choose them. Trying to put themselves at the front of the people. Trying to maybe look stronger than everybody else or something like that. That they might be chosen. These men were in a desperate situation just in the vocation that they were in as day laborers. They're desperate. For a denarius. And that brings us to our next point. The wage given shows desperation. A denarius was the absolute common wage given to everybody that would would be able to feed a family for a day. They lived day to day. Not paycheck to paycheck, but day to day for a denarius. And this payment showed, again, the desperation that these people were under. And Jesus chooses to put this before our face. All of these people, first and last, and all in between, are desperate people. But, we should realize, verses 1 and 2 again, was common. Nothing in the reading of this would sound anything different than the average day that everybody experienced in the kingdom of Palestine. But when we get to verses 3 through 7, things get strange. This master doesn't act like other masters act. This master, in fact, it seems, his motivation isn't to get cheap labor for his vineyard, but to provide for the people of the marketplace. Notice with me, this master 
it is very clear the motivation of his heart is not to pay for labor done, but to provide for people in their desperation. Now, we see that he went out, not just in the first part of the day, but in the third, the sixth, the ninth, and the eleventh hour. Okay, And as I understand Jewish time, it's not like us, they didn't have a mechanical clock. They had 60 seconds that could be measured. Rather, they had daylight, and they divided that daylight up into 12 sections. And each of those sections was an hour. So, roughly speaking, this man went out at the third hour. We could say maybe close to 9 a.m., 12 p.m., 3 p.m., and then the 11th hour, 5 p.m., okay? He went out at these different times of day and called men to come out into the vineyard. And this shows the goodness of the master's heart. The goodness of the master's heart. Now, these men being chosen out of the goodness of the master's heart, not because of wages, is exceedingly clear, especially with that last group, isn't it? The 11th hour workers. You have to recall, they didn't have lights over the fields. Okay? They didn't have any of these things. The day ended when the sun went down, when you couldn't see the grapes any longer. These men probably, literally, walked out onto the field and walked back. Okay? They maybe got a handful of grapes before they were done, and they were paid. This shows the master's heart, doesn't it? He knew that, right? He wasn't so foolish as to think that they were going to put in a full day's labor. He wanted to provide for them. It is the goodness of his heart. And it's shown in these 11th hour workers, but also because these 11th hour workers, I hope you're sticking with me, were the most undesirable of workers. Right? I know know many of you probably, just because we, we tend to maybe be a little nerdy here, I don't know have a painful memory of, of the playground being the skinny kid on the playground with glasses, being the last one chosen for any kind of playground sports, right? You're standing there and the awkward moment comes when you're the absolute last person standing there and you know that you're not chosen because why? You don't do anything very well. You're not a desirable person to play with because you just can't put the ball in the hoop or whatever thing you do in the sport, okay? You don't sports well, right? <laughs> but... These men, imagine it. The desperation here is heightened because their very lives depend on it. And they were last chosen because no one hired them. They weren't strong enough to carry out a day's labor. Maybe they knew their own character and personality that they were kind of scoundrels. And they're not going to do work. They're just going to pretend like they're working when the master's there. These men were undesirable as anybody was, but the master hired them all. He hired them all. The least hireable were chosen. And he is concerned, obviously, from these facts. What's the heart of our master? Why does he do the things he does? He is concerned with loving the desperate much more than getting bang for his buck. And the first called, in our parable, they forgot their desperation. They forgot their desperation. They forgot that at one point earlier that day, although it was only 12 hours prior, they were standing there just hoping and praying, hopefully, that somebody would come and choose them, knowing that they depended on it. And they agreed with this man, a denarius a day, and I'm sure their hearts were thankful. Oh, it's enough to feed my family. It's enough to provide my greatest need. And they were thankful. But when they saw these others, 
more undesirable than they were. Chosen at the 11th hour, did less work, didn't bear the heat of the day. They grumbled in their heart and in their souls against the Master. Now, brothers and sisters, I ask you, do you grumble against your brothers and sisters? Because of their material attainments in this world. Do you look at what they have and you grumble in your heart and think, it's unfair. Do you grumble against the spiritual attainments of your brothers and sisters? You look at a a brother or sister who, who seems to witness the gospel without any effort or praise to God more than you do or is in his devotions or has a better joy in his heart and you say, I wish that God would give that to me and you grumble against it. Brothers and sisters, I would say that if that's your case, and it's my case, that we often forget our original condition. The desperation that we were in before Jesus Christ came into our lives and saved us. We forget that we have gotten our greatest need met. And this is the first antidote to our legalistic thinking that we must remember that all of us, first or last, were in a desperate condition before God called us. But the second is this. That we ought to recall that this Master and be reminded that this Master, our Savior, is a God that delights in demonstrating grace that is not earned, but freely given. Notice that in verses 8-10. through 10. I'm going to reread that. And when the evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to the foreman, call the laborer and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. Now, as we consider from a worldly perspective the the business foolishness of this man, right? Anybody that has a company that I'm aware of tries to keep their payroll secret. Because they don't want the other people to start grumbling when they find out that somebody gets paid more than somebody else, right? And this master had the ability to do the same thing. He could have, and it would have been the most natural thing in the world to call the first to the last, not the last to the first. But he chose purposefully in his wisdom to call the last. Why? Because he wanted to show the first. He wanted to expose and show his free grace rather than try to lift up their works. He desires to demonstrate grace to a captive audience, right? Waiting in line to be paid. And he knows that these men are going to grumble. And God is trying to teach these men something and trying to teach us something through this. When grace is demonstrated, Christ as our prophet uses it to teach us. Now, if we consider New Testaments, I just want us to think about how much God loves to do this. Instead of playing into our innate tendency to to work to God, to work to earn His rewards, God is always delighting to demonstrate His grace. And there's a couple of examples, and we can multiply them. Think about, first of all, the birth orders that we commonly see in the Old and New Testament. That it is not the firstborn... That, gets the, that receives the inheritance, but often God chooses the secondborn, the less desirable one, to receive the grace given. Now, we think of that with maybe, first of all, Isaac and Ishmael, right? Ishmael was born first. Isaac received. 
the blessing. Jacob and Esau, we know what a scoundrel Jacob was in his character, but according to Jewish custom and all ancient custom, it was Esau that should have received the birthright. But God promised even before they were born, it would be Jacob. That as Romans 9 says, that the purpose of election might stand. That God's grace would be shown to an undeserving sinner. We see it with Ephraim and Manasseh. Genesis chapter 49. That you might recall the scene. They're brought in, Joseph's two sons, and instead of placing his hands where they should go, he crossed his hands and blessed the secondborn rather than the first. Why? God delights to show grace in the birth order of the Old Testament. But we think of it even with David and his brothers. Think of Saul, a man that towered above everybody else, that was handsome, and even David's brothers that seem, by worldly perspective, to be better, but David is the one who is chosen. But furthermore, we think of Jews and Gentiles, don't we? That the Gentiles, and not the first chosen, but the Gentiles who didn't seek after God's righteousness are the ones who are blessed by faith along with the Jews. And then we think of Matthew 18. The example, the humility of the little child being brought into the presence of the disciples. And he says, you need to become like this little child who can offer nothing, give nothing of any value and receive the kingdom of heaven as one who has nothing to offer. Okay? God loves, he delights to show his power in grace. To demonstrate grace in a way that's undeserved. Now, the reason for that It's because God created this world as a theater for His divine glory. That God desires to show Himself in all of His attributes to His creation as a God to be glorified. And therefore, lest we take the credit for our wisdom, our ability, our work, our desirability, God often chooses the least to demonstrate that it's His work and not ours. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians. What a clear text this is. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that tells us of God's love even in the new covenant to show His grace to those who are undesirable and unworthy. Notice verses 26 through 31. Paul says to these people who are, who are tending, notice in the book of 1 Corinthians, tempted to exalt themselves above one another. To exalt the teachers that they love above other teachers and to feel superior to their brothers and sisters. Notice what he says. For consider your calling. That is, your effectual calling when God called you out of the world to save you. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth, but God chose what is foolish in the world, these 11th hour workers, to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. And here's the purpose, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him... Notice that. Because of Him and Him alone, you are in Christ Jesus. Not because of your own ability to have faith or anything like that. Because of Him. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Boast in the Lord. 
Our God loves to show His power in grace. And so, we need to be warned here from this text as we think about this good Master and how God constantly, to a captive audience, is showing His grace. That we are always having a tendency not just to work for rewards, but to have an unbiblical view of God. To have an unbiblical view of God that He's a God that gets most glory when we work the hardest. When we perform well. Now, I know that might be a shocking thing to say, brothers and sisters, but we believe sometimes that God is most glorified in us based upon our performance. If we just had better devotional times, if, if I could just have a week where I could sit down with my Bible and read the amount of chapters that I want to read for the week, then God would be most glorified. If I just witnessed to one person a day, God would be most glorified. If I was just gentler with my kids, even for one day, God then, we believe, would be most glorified in us because of our performance. But brothers and sisters, I'm here boldly say that's not the case. The glory of God in His His divine theater that He has set up, God is most glorified in free grace. There is not more joy in heaven for your devotions. There's not more joy in heaven for any of these things. Rather, joy in heaven, the Bible tells us, is at its peak when one sinner repents and believes in the Lord Jesus Christ. God is not most glorified and will not display His riches eternally in heaven in the future state by our ability to keep the law. I hope you understand what I mean there. That when this whole world is wrapped up and consumed and come to an end and we stand in glory forever, God will not be most glorified in me by saying, see how He kept the law? See how good He did it doing all this? Rather, as Ephesians 1.7 says, so that in the coming ages, that future eternal state, He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is going to be the glory of heaven. This is why God will be glorified because He'll point at the Apostle Paul and me and you and say, look how sinful they are and I saved them anyway. This is how God is glorified. He is most glorified in our trust and belief in His promise. He came to save sinners among whom I am chief. Chief. He loves to show His grace. And we ought to be reminded of that, brothers and sisters, because we forget it so easy. We're desperate, and the desperation of our heart to have our greatest need met has been met. But we ought to let this grace of God expose us as it exposed these men. Now, in verses 11 through 16, we see the reaction of these men. That he called the 11th, the least desirable, the most desperate among this group, and he paid them what they needed first. Now, I'd ask you today, if we were to step back from our own sinful attitudes, what should have been the proper response? Oh, that we would rejoice, right? That we would we'd bring out the fattened calf and slay it and rejoice that such a good master exists that would take care of these men even though they couldn't take care of themselves. But they responded with grumbling toward God and toward man. And that, brothers and sisters, this is the condition of our hearts, isn't it? 
This is the condition of our hearts. They grumbled at the master. They grumbled at the master because he didn't give them what they perceived because they were owed more for their labor. They grumbled at their fellow man because they were undesirable. And God loves not only, brothers and sisters, listen to me. God does not only love to expose his grace, he loves to expose our sin through his grace. That's another purpose here. He'll be glorified in heaven, but he, he loves to teach sinners that the sinfulness of their own hearts is still in them, that we might go to him. That we might go to him and flee to him. These workers may have thought themselves while they were entering that vineyard that day that they're not self-righteous. They're not legalistic. But as soon as they saw somebody they deemed to be less deserving getting the same thing they got, it exposed that in their hearts they think they're much better than their fellow man. And their sin comes to light. And again, as we've looked at examples of how God loves to show His grace, I want us to look at just three quick examples in the book of Luke how God loves to show His grace in order to expose our legal thinking. Turn with me to three texts, all in Luke. Luke chapter 5. Again, brothers and sisters, I, I just want us to see that if you're convicted in your heart that this is you, that's because it's all of us. And that God uses grace to expose the gracelessness that we have naturally. Luke chapter 5. Verse 29. Notice in Levi, that's Matthew, made him a great feast. That is Christ a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with him. In verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, it's the grace of Jesus Christ in inviting and calling these men and sitting with them to give them the gospel. It exposed something in the Pharisaical heart, didn't it? They grumbled against him. It's not fair that the Messiah would come and eat with sinners. Notice chapter 15. Oh, this is such a wonderful text, and we're going to read it as our final reading. But we see the, the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son. This younger son, undesirable and unworthy, went and spent all of his inheritance on prostitutes. And he comes back to the father. But notice the response of the elder brother. Verse 28, but he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father. And notice how it's just like these first workers. Look, these many years I have served you. I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you're with me always. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and to be glad for your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Lastly, Luke chapter 19. Again, we're, we're noticing how just like these first workers, God loves to display His grace to expose the sin of our hearts. Luke chapter 19 
and verse 7. Now, Zacchaeus is the man here. He was a chief tax collector. He was very, very rich. And notice in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, He looked up and said, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So He hurried and came down and received Him. He received Christ joyfully. And when they saw it, when the Jews saw it, they grumbled. He has gone in to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. God loves to expose our self-righteousness by His grace. And God has the freedom to do that. He loves to expose our hearts and our legal mentality by giving grace, but also by exposing His freedom to do so. Doesn't He? That's what our Master in our parable says. Can I not do freely what I want with my own money? And we see that God, He freely gives grace in this very way, but it exposes the rottenness of our hearts that God could be free to choose some. And we see this in Romans 9, don't we, that says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part to choose some, not others? By no means, for He says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends, listen to this, it depends not on human will or exertion. It depends on nothing done in man, but on God who has mercy. For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he has mercy on whoever he wills, and whoever he wills, he pardons. Deep in the legalistic heart, we have a, we have a desire, and as crazy and as absurd as it sounds, we have a desire that God would somehow base it upon our works in some way, shape, or form so that we would be better than our brothers and sisters. And all of this exposes a legal spirit. And just to share with you something I think is in all of our hearts. When, when me and my wife were struggling with infertility for, for many, many years, and I know many of us struggle with that, and it's a painful thing to consider. But I confess from my heart when we'd see others it was hard for me in my heart not to grumble against God for things given to others. And that exposed me. It is much easier, brothers and sisters, because of our sinfulness, to weep with those who weep than it is to rejoice with those who rejoice. Because we want the rewards for ourselves. We have a desire for the competition to lean to our favor. We'd be shown for the goodness of who we are. But that's not what the Gospel is about. This exposes us that God owes me something for what I've done when He owes me nothing but death and hell. It exposes that the grace is earned by my own sacrifice in some way. But again, it exposes something else. I've forgotten my desperation. I've forgotten that my greatest need is not that I would have rewards. My greatest need is that I am a sinner under God's condemnation and wrath, and I need somebody to save me from it. To save me from myself and to save me from God and His wrath. And it has been given to us by Christ. I have forgotten, when I think this way, that He does all that He wills and that no one can stay His hand. But this exposure of our hearts leads us 
Not to condemnation, brothers and sisters. It leads us to grace. Again, I'll repeat something I've said before and has become more and more prevalent in my mind. Nothing in the Scriptures speaks to Christians with an intent that we would feel condemned and that God is against us. All of it, even when we're convicted of our sins at the deepest level, is meant to make us go to Jesus Christ as fast as we can. The end goal of this parable, again, is not that we would feel really bad for ourselves, even though we should feel bad about our sin. But that's not the end goal. The end goal is not that we would conclude that God cannot love us because I have this sin that exists in my heart. Remember, he is speaking to his beloved apostles that he chose out of the world here. Speaking to Peter. The goal, rather, is that he desires for us to see ourselves in the mirror of God's law and trust the grace of the master of the vineyard. He's provided for us. Even though I'm this sinful and desperate, he's given me something much greater than a denarius. He's provided something much better for me and my family than just food for a day, and I don't deserve that. He took all of my sin. All of my original corruption, my bent nature that makes me a monster before God, before His holy angels. He took that nature upon Himself. That original sin. And more than that, He gave us all of His righteousness. All of His righteousness. This man never grumbled a day in his life. Born in a stable. He looks around. He's the king of the universe that gives life and breath to all things. And many other men have more than him. He suffers much more than many other men. And in fact, suffered physically even more than any man will ever suffer. And yet, he did not grumble, did not complain, but suffered all for our sake. And we have that righteousness given to us. We have it. As it is written... He became sin. Who knew, no, sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. Now, if this has exposed your sins, brother and sister, you're better off. You're better off. These men are better off in this parable. They've seen who they truly are, and therefore, they can go to God knowing that He died for people like me. God is pruning you through this. But if you feel like the least of all saints because of it, the least desirable, the least worthy, the most sinful, (laughs) I will tell you very clearly, then you will be first. God loves to demonstrate His grace in you. He loves to demonstrate His grace in you. And as a last finishing thought, you might think of the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee before the temple in Luke chapter 18. And Christ says this, I tell you, this man, the one who couldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, forgive me, a sinner. Christ says this in verse 14 of Luke 18. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Why? For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. If we see our sin and yet trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone, 
Brothers, we, we are humbled in our soul, but God exalts us. Not because of what we've done, but because we receive grace freely given to us. And so, in conclusion, this parable today should teach us, I believe, that we are to avoid and beware of the legalistic tendency in our heart first by remembering our original condition and the desperation that we are in for a Savior by remembering God's love to give grace to undeserving sinners, to show it in the world, and to love God exposing the the sinfulness of our hearts that we might go to Him in grace. These things, they, they make for a wonderful spiritual medicine for the soul when we feel legalistic, when we are legalistic. That God loves grace and that we are not to view rewards as wages earned, but as grace given by a good and loving Master. As we look to the Lord's table today, what a better picture of this. As Jesus Christ takes His bread and He breaks it and says, this is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. That Christ gives us Himself. His righteousness, His acts, His sacrifice, and His death, and even His own person. We are in Jesus Christ. No longer in Adam under the sin of that first covenant, but in the righteousness of Christ and the forgiveness freely offered in the second. He broke His body and gave it to us. What a wonderful picture of the great need that we have and it's offered through our good vineyard keeper, Christ. Amen. Well, pray with me. Lord, we come before You. Uh, God, I, I pray that You bless Your Word to Your people and You bless us now as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Please, Lord, um, guide us and help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The Apostle Paul writes to us.